Are you an enemy of God? I did quite a lot of driving on our recent holiday. Queensland is a big state and long drives provide good opportunities to listen to talks and books and so on. At one time, I listened to someone speaking about the letter of Paul to the Romans and they referred to chapter 5, verse 10, while we were enemies. And the comment was made that the modern person doesn't ever think of themselves as an enemy of God. A key phrase. You have to realise you go from enemy to child. Paul is saying you really were at odds with God. And the speaker spoke how countercultural it was when it comes to thinking about religion and their standing with God. Well, people say, well, I'm, I'm an agnostic. I'm not really sure what I think about God. I haven't really decided what I think about God. But what never dawns on people is what God might think of them. People are always talking about what they think of God or whether they believe God exists or what God is like or what he would or what his character is, but no one ever bothers to think about what God might think of them. And it reveals our narcissistic culture we live in. Everyone just assumes they are great and the problem is elsewhere. It never dawns on them that God might have a problem with them, that they may not be doing so hot that none of us have such a great standing. And Paul here declares, God regarded you as an enemy under his wrath and deservedly so. Not capricious, not arbitrary, not that God was in a bad mood, you really deserved it. But in the gospel, we have full reconciliation. That's verse 10. You don't get the enemy status. You don't get how wonderful the gospel is. That's the whole point of it. It's while we were enemies. And there I was driving through Queensland. I thought, something that I, I know of. But just that it resonated so much with where the modern mindset is. People always talking about what they think of God. But no one bothering these days to think about what God might think of them. And so this morning I turn to Romans chapter 5, that passage I've just read, which truly is one of my favourite passages of Scripture. And I pulled out my filing cabinet, looked through my sermons, and to my amazement discovered that I hadn't actually preached on this particular section of Romans. I preached on almost every other chapter a long time ago. Uh, we went through almost the whole letter and I realised Eric Chen. Remember Eric? He got Romans 5, 1 to 11. Well, I have spoken of it else in, in different contexts, but not here. It's a beautiful passage that introduces many key themes. Peace, reconciliation, love, faith, hope, grace, perseverance in the midst of suffering. And this little section is, it's like a hinge in the letter. If you're not familiar with Paul's letter to the Romans, it's arguably the greatest letter in the Bible. It is Paul's major work. 
his most mature work. It's impacted massively down through Christian history. The great St. Augustine to Luther, from John Wesley to Karl Barth. Romans 1 to 4, the opening chapters, are where Paul talks about a marvellous story of justification by faith. And then here in verse 1, Paul sums it up. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And then he looks forward. This section prepares the way for chapters 5 to 8. And so this hinge kind of looks back to chapters 1 to 4 and then peers forward, especially to the theme of suffering, and yet suffering with rejoicing with sure hope. Well, uh, our section could be divided into four parts like this. Part 1, so since we're justified, we have peace with God. Second, so we boast in suffering, verses 3 to 5. Third, why? Because God proved his love for the ungodly, verses 6 to 8. And then four, fourthly, the means, the reconciliation and future salvation in verses 9 to 11. So part one, Paul begins with his summary, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. The word justified, linked with the word righteousness, uh, is a legal notion. It means we have been acquitted, declared right. That's that picture in the, in the law court, the case is there, the judge is there, and acquittal comes. On what basis? Is it something we have done? Or do we have to be Jewish? No. Romans 1 to 4, particularly when we come to chapter 4, haven't earned this, it isn't something given as a reward. It comes by faith. The whole lesson of Abraham, Romans 4. The argument of Paul in these opening four chapters is largely driven by who can be included in the promises of God, in the promises given to Abraham, in the hope of the gospel. Who can be counted in the game, as it were? Included, inclusion. Now, well, there's a word for our day, isn't there? The debacle in the past week at Manly Rugby League Club. The Herald journalist, Malcolm Knox, commented on it in yesterday's paper, I noticed, and he spoke about the Sea Eagles marketing brands. I quote part of it. He said, the formula goes like this. Let's dress up our sporting event in an important social issue. Women, indigenous, mental health, kindness, or let's just call it everyone in league week. Can we make it nice and positive? Can we make it feel good about ourselves and forget, and he talks about all the different uh, problems of manly, the negatives. Can it be packaged into saleable merchandise? And above all, can it come at no cost, no sacrifice, no trouble, no complication? Well, that's a great marketing strategy, he said. Tell us how that went. On the other side of the spectrum in the Australian, uh, Janet Albrechtson uh, was responding 
uh, to the Herald journalist Peter Fitzsimmons. The headline read on the same su subject, forcing opinions onto others creates division, not diversity. And she responded to the journalist Peter Fitzsimmons, who, and she quoted, said this, Fitzsimmons said, what the hell is wrong with you blokes that you don't get it? You are prepared to trash the entire manly season on this issue alone? Can we have a statement from the seven of you to make clear your views so we can all understand? And Albertson note, noted Fitzsimmons' call sounds like a new inquisition where heretics are called to account for their differing views. And then she wrote, one word should do. Faith. In the hierarchy of what matters most, these seven players have chosen their faith above a rugby game. In a free country, how they express their faith, what value they prize ahead of others provided, provided they're not hurting, hurting or harming others. Inclusion. The gospel brings hope to every single human being on the planet. It is a message to respond to by faith. And Paul says it is in that response by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This peace isn't just some warm inner glow. It's not merely subjective. It is objective. We were at war with God. That hostility is now ended. How? Through Jesus Christ. God has sent his son to make peace between the two wild parties who are at war. Us and God. And there is more. Verse 2, there is access. Through Jesus, we have grace by faith. We boast, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of Christ. We have obtained access. On the day that I was writing this sermon, I had been corresponding with the Bishop of Armadale, Eliza Newmark. Welcome, Eliza and Alberto. Good news. Eliza, from our evening congregation, had asked me to take uh, her wedding in Edinburgh in November. I haven't even announced it here, that I, but I think, <laughs> congratulations. Um, I hasten to read, I read all this before uh, I knew you were going to be here. Uh, but uh, she'd asked me to take her their, their wedding uh, in November, and I'm able to take weddings here in the Sydney Diocese, but to take a wedding in another diocese, well, I... I need to have, obtain access. I go through the bishop and ask his permission. So I wrote, Dear Bishop. And he wrote back and gave me the okay. I sent a thank you. And right as I was reading 5 verse 2 at my desk, we have obtained access, when another short message came back. 
from the Bishop of Armidale. And he, it was on a first name basis. I'd never met him, but suddenly it felt like the doors were kind of wide open to the diocese. You want access to a wedding in a burial? Sure! Come on! Take a baptism if you like, preach a sermon, funeral, the door's open for you! I had the grace of the bishop. Well, Romans chapter 5, verse 2 is the same nation, though I assure you it is a bit beyond mere New South Wales geography. This is the grace of God of all eternity. And I think grace here is not so much referring to that initial saving grace, but more the ongoing favour of God on his people. It's a grace that means we always have a VIP pass into the hallways of heavenly power. There's no closed door with a flashing sign, access denied. The kingdom of God has been opened through Christ for us. And so there is, what's the response? Well, jubilation. We rejoice, says Paul. The word rejoice here is the word boast. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. And these two themes, hope and glory, will be uh, picked up and uh, come through in that triumphant chapter, Romans 8. And that's all why Paul has spent so long on this justification by faith theme in chapters 1 to 4. It is such a wonderful outworking. Peace with God, divine favour, hope of sharing in everlasting glory. Life-changing themes. And so part two, we boast in our sufferings, verses 3 to 5. This word boast is used in, or rejoice is used in verse 3, and it closes the section in verse 11. Now listen to verse 3 to 5. More than that, we rejoice, we boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Well, hang on, perhaps you're saying, suffering? What's that got to do with joy, boasting, honour and glory? Suffering? Isn't suffering linked to things like weakness, lament, sadness, shame, being out of favour? Well, here I quote the Reverend Dr. Bill, the late Reverend Dr. Bill Dumbrell, who often came and spoke here. He said, we see here that suffering itself is a necessary part of the Christian life. It is not purposeless. The present suffering of the true people of God as they await their divine vindication is a Jewish theme transferred via the Messiah to all his people. That is, tribulations are not a contradiction for us, as though we are out of favour. They are the very means by which God is furthering his plans and purposes. And we heard some of this in the lesson of Hebrews chapter 12. And so the path of, of faith is what we are walking. It is believing it. And that is character forming for us as Christians. Sufferings bring endurance. Endurance, character, character, hope, and no shame. We grow through it all. 
great one commentator, quite like the way he put it, Christians tend to be like tea bags. And then you have to put them in hot water to see how strong they really are. Sufferings. We persevere under stress. We endure. There is approval for our conduct under pressure. That's character growth. We look forward with confidence to the end of the trial. That's the hope. And so the mockers who would give us shame, it's brushed off. We don't believe it. The world might mock Christians taking a stance, not wearing a footy jumper. But life is bigger than a rugby game. This God, he is the one who is in complete control. And he is the one whose verdict alone matters. And he is the one who brings vindication. The world's shaming is not the last word. And note, that hope is, as someone has put it, uh, it's like a muscle. It degenerates if it goes unused. So if in trial and hardship you doubt God's goodness and promises, the result can be bitterness and despair. But meet hardship with an attitude of confidence and rejoicing, that is, Christian hope, then character develops. Michael Bird paraphrases it, we brag in the midst of affliction about God's glory, knowing that affliction produces a strong backbone. A strong backbone produces authenticity. Authenticity produces hope, and hope does not make us shy away in shame. But it's not all on us. On us. Don't miss the second half of verse 5. It is because... God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The believer is not on his own. God's love has been poured out and the Holy Spirit has been given to us. In the midst of a world of pain and suffering, we have been drawn to know the love of God. and His Spirit transforms everything. Believers have been drawn into communion with the everlasting God. So part three, why? Because God proved his love for the ungodly. Because God proved his love for the ungodly. Verses six to eight, well, Paul spells out what this love is. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here is the extraordinary truth of the gospel. In God's perfect timing, the whole outworking of his dealings with humanity through the nation of Israel. We've been looking at the story of Nehemiah in recent weeks, which picks up on the Davidic promise, the whole history of God's purposes 
flowing from the call and promise to Abraham, all preparing and in the right time, the son of David, the Christ, came. Paul here says, in the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We were weak, he said. And he goes on in verse 7, which is almost a little bit of an aside. Someone might just give their life for a good person. Uh, right at the start of my ministry, I'd literally been uh, ordained as a presbyter uh, only a few weeks. And uh, it's 1994, the start of 1994, almost 30 years ago. And I had a call from the fire commissioner coming down, or that the fire commissioner was coming down, I was in the Southern Highlands, and could I come with him to meet a woman whose husband had just died in the massive bushfires which were afflicting our state at that time. So I found myself there and ended up, it was a, you may recall those 94 fires came right into the heart of Sydney. It was a huge time. And so this became uh, really a, a funeral that was all over the media. And I had to therefore really make sure I knew what I was going to say at that service, uh, at that funeral for Bob Page. And indeed it were these words that were part of the, the thrust of what I spoke on. That uh, someone just might One, one was scarcely going for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. And, and we reflected, I reflected on the fact that here was Bob who had voluntarily left Bundanoon and gone up the Central Coast. And what a, what a noble action, what a good action. And yet, he had died. And I spoke about the hope we have. Paul here, so you might just give your life for a good person, like Bob Page. But verse 8, we were weak. We were sinners. We're against God. And he's made very clear this is every single human being. Who is good? Who is without sin? No one. Against God, hostile. But it is exactly at that point, that's when God showed his love for us. He demonstrated, he proved it, the ultimate revelation. You might just die for a good person, but here is the shock. God has shown his love while we were sinners. He did it by sending Christ to die for them. Christ died for us. That is the wonder of the gospel. Jesus Christ does not die for the righteous. He dies to make the unrighteous righteous. It is the topsy-turvy, crazy, freaky, wildly illogical, world-denying, self-giving love, as Michael Bird puts it, that God shows sinners in Christ Jesus. And so, part four, it means reconciliation and future salvation. All of this 
has a huge impact on how we face our future. Here is where the assurance about our future lies. Verse 9, his blood has brought justification acquittal. So therefore, how much more will we be saved? That is, God is going to complete what he began. Then comes verse 10, that verse which I mentioned at the start, the enemy, enemy's verse. Listen to verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. It echoes verse 8. Where were we when Christ died for us? We were God's enemies. But now we've been reconciled to God. Because of his death, we are his friends. Well, if now we are reconciled friends, then how much more can we be absolutely certain that he will save us by his life? And notice here, that salvation has a future dimension. Salvation is in the past, yes, it is through the death of Jesus, but the wrath of God is something that we need to be saved from. The death of Jesus marks the beginning of our salvation. It secures it, but its consummation depends on the life of Christ. Christ's living, risen life is the guarantee we shall be kept for salvation. Thanks be to God that he rose from the dead. And notice how here we have justification, reconciliation going together, two sides, if you like, of the one coin, and reconciliation becomes one of the great unifying themes and centres of Paul's gospel. In the place of hostility has come friendship. Warfare is over. There's no longer toxicity between God and man. Instead, peace and reconciliation. And it began with God, not with us. He initiated it. He has reached out to sinners through Jesus, his son. It's not about us doing something. Though we were worthy, pleading, asking, we were opposed, we were his enemies. God's love, his grace reached out then. And so when you understand that, when you know that, you, you rejoice, you boast. This is what drives our singing, our, our worship, our being, our outlook. This is why we gather together. We rejoice, verse 11. More than that, we rejoice also in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Here is the wonder of the gospel. Some... 40, maybe 50 years ago, I came to hear this message and, and to grab and understand it with clarity. But I need to keep coming back to it. You need to keep coming back to it. It is at the very heart. It's why I love this passage. You get this right and your life is transformed. And so I conclude with a couple of implications. First, access. I mentioned earlier the access to the Bishop of Armada. You know that time where sometimes you go into a building and 
To get in, you need an access card. If you've got the card, it brings you this feeling of kind of almost privilege, exclusivity. I used to have a school uh, card. I'd, I'd come to the door and kind of swing in. So I was entering some kingdom. I can go in and out as I like. Not like those ones over there. I have special privileges, 24-7. Tim Teller apparently tweeted once, the only person who dare wake up a king at 3am for a glass of water is a child. We now, through Christ, have that kind of access. Through him. To try and approach God without Christ would mean not only access denied, but result in the social equivalent, as Michael Bird put it, of being roughly carried out of a building by several serious-looking men wearing black suits, dark sunglasses, and pressing a finger against their earpieces while muttering, a weasel is being escorted from the building. I repeat, the weasel is being escorted from the building. The area is now secure. Please stand down. Now, through Christ, the way to God's presence is forever open to us who bear his name. No security service, special passcode, deadlock, or whatever that can prevent us from going into God's presence. We are free to enter the presence of the heavenly, royal, all-sovereign and holy God. Considering we are enemies, we were his enemies once, godless sinners, by nature objects of his wrath, that is not bad. As we sing in that song, only by grace can we enter, only by grace can we stand, not by our human endeavour, but by the blood of the Lamb. And it is by faith. And it unfolds that faith in demonstrating virtues, Christian virtues, marks of the Christian endurance, character, hope. I had a minister who once shared with me, me these lines which captures the theme of character. If you sow a thought, you reap an act. If you sow an act, you reap a habit. If you sow a habit, you reap a character. If you sow a character, then you reap a destiny. We have hope. Finally, that hope is because Christ died for us. Many know that my wife Mary works as a chaplain at St Vincent's Hospital. The other night she was in emergency and an elderly lady was very agitated. And uh, the lady in charge in the emergency section, had the doctors there ready to deal with, but saw Mary come in, the pastoral care chaplain, and she said, hold on, doctor and others. I'm glad you're here, Mary. Follow me. So Mary followed to this lady who was in her 90s, had been quite agitated, and she met with her and began listening and talking and the lady, others have left by this stage, 
this elderly lady noticed Mary was pastoral care. And there was a sudden change. She said, Jesus, Jesus, he, he died for me. And there is this sense of peace and joy and delight as this elderly lady shared her love of Jesus and how massively it had changed her own outlook. As I heard Mary share this story with me, it struck me that the gospel is massive in its implications, it is cosmic in dimension, but we must never lose the personal. This is a message for you and me, one which never loses its wonder. He is your life. The message of reconciliation is one we hold out to a needy world. It is the message to believe in, to have faith, lest you fall under the wrath of your Creator. And so we keep proclaiming that wonderful message. The danger of the church, of church culture, is that we're lulled into false self-belief, trusting in our own religiosity, rather than trusting in Jesus for redemption. You want to know one of the giveaway phrases? That indicates maybe, maybe you're not on the right path. It's when you say, I'm a good person. Never let this church become a place where sinners can sulk in sorrow or the self-righteous feel solace. That 90-year-old unsettled woman in the emergency department of St. Vincent's Hospital got Jesus. Jesus. He died for me. Faith spoken from her heart. Let us pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, may your Holy Spirit give us grace to receive your word and we pray that it will bear fruit to your glory.